Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger, the outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. today's episode of the extra environmentalist first we talk about what it's like to visit a culture that's dealing with the aftermath of a terrible disaster we talk with ian mckenzie and michael stone about their trip to japan following the disaster of fukushima and what it's like filming their new film reactor i wasn't actually able to sit in on that interview but justin was able to be there and sit down with the two guys right outside the premiere of the show so he was able to capture firsthand what it was like. And on the second half of today's episode, we take the concepts that we discussed with John D. Liu on the last episode about the potential to restore large-scale ecosystems and discuss them with William Ferwerda, founder and director of the Ecosystem Return Foundation, about his ideas to fund the restoration of these large-scale ecosystems and to fund business models that are centered on regenerative sustainability. We ask Willem if it's even possible for business to fund restorative activities given that so many of the business activities that we currently see on the planet are involved in depleting water tables, pumping carbon into the climate, and using up the remaining energy resources that we have available. And Willem talks about how potential funds like pension investments and other investments could provide resources for these businesses focused on ecosystem restoration to take the next step into a larger scale. We'll start off this episode with Michael Stone about his motivations for going to Japan. I feel and felt at the time that we were coming to the end of history. And what I mean by the end of history is an absence of ideas, an absence of the imagination. I feel almost like the structure of our corporate world was at war with our collective imagination and that we weren't finding new stories to replace some of the old stories. And so I thought when uh, I was watching on television the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant melting down and scientists basically standing around saying we have no idea what to do right now that the destruction of the human built world which was the real issue not just the tsunami um, would force in Japan and hopefully around the world a new way of thinking about how much we're consuming how much electricity we need and so on and I also felt that that wasn't just a political or ecological issue, that in a way it was also a spiritual issue, because it was about turning inward personally and also collectively to find a new way of approaching suffering. We thought we were going to make a film that was more journalistic 
in a sense, documenting how people were responding to the Fukushima Daiichi situation. But actually, when we got there, we started to think together about the way that what was really going on was that our culture is addicted to stories. And those stories are outdated. And we all know it. And we're still spinning around in the same circles. So what do we do as a culture to start to let go of old narratives? So then the film became more complicated. Because how do you show, through film, people struggling with old paradigms and not knowing what the new paradigms are without being grandiose? So as we started talking to people, I started recognizing in myself that I was letting go of this feeling I've had for my adult life that there was some new paradigm around the corner. And I started to realize actually what's interesting in activist work is not really the big ideas, but all the small things that uh, add up together to create a wave, so to speak. So making the film became a, 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 a kind of it, it turned into a strategy of how do we put these small things together to make a more human film without the kind of destruction porn that we were seeing in so many films coming out of Japan at the time. That had been done already. I mean, the wish for it to be some sort of overnight shift of mass enlightenment and, you know, this idea that suddenly we'll wake up and everything will be different is, I mean, it's, it's romanticizing, I think, how we've come to understand change happens. And that we started looking at those that were, they, they felt that they were taking action in a meaningful way. And it was oftentimes very simple, like very, very simple, very personal actions that for them it wasn't, they, they had the sense of what, you know, how it might add up to a big change. But really that was secondary to, I think, what they, where they felt most needed and of service in the moment. And there was one fellow, Hanamaro Fuji, this illustrator. One moment for him, he was writing this um, off-the-cuff illustrated story, children's, sto children's story, you know, in quotations, about how the tsunami happened and what the impact was and how you can engage at the political level. But then the next moment, he was telling us a story about how he'd gone up to Fukushima and was handing out blankets and food and, you know, giving uh, old women, you know, massaging their shoulders from being sore from lying down. And it was very beautiful and simple in that fashion. And to him, there was no difference between those large actions and the small actions. And so I think in the film, we, we've tried to show that those are just as potent and harder to see, but significant. In the film, you are in places like Tokyo, as well as the devastated areas uh, that were affected by the tsunami. And how is it that there's this juxtaposition where it seems like business as usual is chugging along in a place like Tokyo, where there's all the corporate brands and people going and buying, you know, posh clothing and shopping and buying into the consumer narrative just like normal. And then you go to the other side of the the country and there's still a nuclear reactor that hasn't been contained and there's still devastation and people's livelihoods that are absolutely destroyed. How did you see Japanese people dealing with that kind of conflict and how did you deal with it when you were there? I think one of the most moving moments for me in filming was we went to Osaka and we visited a nuclear research station with one of the country's leading uh, nuclear scientists and he said that nuclear is dangerous. And when we kept pushing him, he eventually said he has no idea how things will change. Because Japan, of all countries, can and has in the past been able to work with a value system that consumes less. But Tokyo isn't built on that. 
And when we pushed him, you know, to really answer our question, uh, and this part's not in the film, but he said that um, he couldn't imagine things changing in a culture like Tokyo. And it's interesting because, you know, one thing we know is that even with all the amazing new technologies like nanotechnology, solar technology, uh, all the work with wind, the research that's been going on, the scientists still tell us that none of it works unless we start consuming less. But the thing is, you know, and this is just getting back to the more psychological or what I was calling spiritual level, is that as communities have been uh, eroded in our culture, the place people turn for connection is shopping. So when you say to people, we have to consume less, it's almost like an assault on their identity. And it becomes a kind of defense right away. Oh, consume less. How could we ever consume less? But the truth is, if we're going to change our relationship to nuclear power or coal or deal with the climate catastrophe in general, we have to consume less. And to me, that's a psychological issue as much as it's a policy issue. And I think without that kind of uh, inner awareness, which I think is happening more and more in this new generation of activism, I think we're just going to be chasing after policies that are going to try and curtail consumerism in ways that will always be overpowered by corporate interests. It reminds me of uh, an interview <clears throat> I recently did with Gabor Mate, who's done you know some fantastic work with addiction. And uh, I was asking him about you know how to really understand addiction, and, and in his perspective, that he says, you know, often we focus on the addiction as the problem, right? And you know, Michael just saying there how often we we look at ways of sort of enforcing or guilting people into consuming less which is a way, I think, of trying to look at or trying to uh, make addiction the problem. But addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the symptom of the problem. And the symptom is what's not being fed within the culture and within ourselves. And so when you really have no other outlet except to you know, go to the mall when you're feeling lonely or when you're feeling sad or whatever it is, you don't feel like you're leading a meaningful existence, then you know, looking at, at curtailing consumption on its own is really not going to help. And so I think the focus, and, and this is maybe what's going on in activism too, is this idea of, well, how can we uh, create the types of ways of being together that are joyful and beautiful and at the same time not foregoing the necessity of looking at policy and looking at politics, things like that. Having those two together is really a way of uh, engaging with the problem that we're still finding exactly what that means. And things like the Occupy movement were a huge example of trying to do that. Um, but you could say we're in beta test phase, and you know we're we're getting there. Beta test phase is what's exciting to me, because I think that one thing we've learned over the last ten or twenty years is that again these these big ideas of how things will change are not really what we need. We need first to recognize that narratives are outdated, and in the space of them falling away, which I like to think of as a deeper kind of imagination, rather than the, the imagination that goes around in circles with new theories. Uh, something new will pop up. And I think that's starting to happen. So so let's, you know, be cheerleaders for the beta phase. Absolutely. And one of the interesting things about 
Japan's case is that they shut down the nuclear reactors in the country, and now Shinzo Abe, their prime minister, is coming in, and he is the prime cheerleader for, you know, let's get back to normal, let's build more nuclear reactors, let's go and, you know, print tons of uh, meaningless currency and prop up all the systems as they currently are without addressing the deeper problems. How does a crisis like Fukushima Daiichi happen, and then the political powers then entrench themselves even further into the old stories? Well, I think when when big catastrophes like this happen, there's a, you know, there's maybe an immediate response, which can be, you know, shock. In some ways, that there's this space that does get created from these initial impacts. And I think that's a very potent space to to uh, allow that gap to happen. But I mean, you know, numerous times, Naomi Klein has certainly written about this too, that, you know, after something like 9-11, you look at what happened with that moment when everybody was shocked, the whole world was basically saying, you know, we, we, we feel your pain to the U.S. And Bush immediately leapt in and said, okay, we're going to go get the bad guy, right? And, and basically that moment was then used to essentially, what you just said, was embolden those that had, say, contributed uh, or, or chosen it as a moment not to look at the real problems. So I think that's always the short term because people have these patterns, they have these habit patterns. Anybody has tried to change a habit, you know, overnight, uh, even if they face some catastrophes in their relationships or things like that, it can be very difficult still, right, to, to make those significant changes. And so I think it is, it's an iterative approach that with each shockwave, with each impact, it goes deeper and deeper at levels we don't fully understand about what is um, unlocked or unleashed or, or catalyzed by these types of changes. I met with a scholar just before I left for Japan, and I said, the Japanese psyche and the aesthetics that come out of the Japanese psyche have such a deep respect for impermanence. Uh, when you look at Japanese pottery, when you look at calligraphy, there's kind of a respect for the way things change. And that's essentially the, the sort of core philosophy in the spiritual life of the Japanese. It's called mujo, or impermanence. Um, and this scholar said, yes, that's true. And also, in the past 300 years, every time there has been a natural disaster that's wiped out uh, a city or an urban area, the urban area has built, been built back up in exactly the same pattern as before because the landowners, in the face of impermanence, get scared. And they want to keep their investments as they were. So actually, in a way, you could say some architecture may be designed to take into account the way things change. Um, when people are greedy, um, they dig their heels in. But the thing is, when you dig your heels in, um, it doesn't last. You know, you can do it for so long, uh, but the way of nature is that things change and they crumble and they're unreliable. So in a way, that's where my faith comes from as an activist, which is to know that whether it's in my own body or in my family or in my uh, neurology or cognition or in the culture, that things are much more elastic than we think. That gives me hope. I was wondering about any thoughts that either of you may have gathered in being in Japan and thinking about how these global crises are at a magnitude that has never been present in human history, yet human history is full of crisis and spiritual traditions have existed in 
throughout these crises and have helped people deal with the crises and help to uh, not only piece lives back together, but also to manage and develop and build what's next. I was just reading about how after the failure of the Roman Empire, a lot of churches and monasteries were leading up the cultivation of land and growing agriculture to help people have food to put on the table. And so I was wondering about developing a spiritual practice that can be active in a time of such acute crisis. Well, I have two thoughts. The first is, um, we've never been in a human crisis with this kind of lag time. So you can't just stop driving your car and hope that the carbon footprint is going to decrease tomorrow. So there has to be something in place that I don't think we've fully thought through the logic of yet to deal with that fact. Secondly, it was really interesting in Japan that the first responders were not the monasteries. The first responders were the mob. Because uh, the mafia in Japan have such good networks that they were the first people bringing water bottles to cities. They were the first people bringing uh, blankets to the affected areas. They were the first people moving garbage around. Um, this was very, very similar to what happened with Hurricane Sandy in New York City. That the first responders were not the institutions that usually respond. The first responders were the people involved in the Occupy movement. So I think we're starting to see that a, a first response is starting to become, uh, is starting to show up out of the woodwork in surprising ways. And um, I think that, uh, you know, it was a wake-up call in a way for the Japanese uh, Zen traditions especially who talk so much about compassion and awakening, uh, but we could also see that their approach uh, in the face of suffering was a little stale and a little slow. And I think it was a wake-up call to say that we have to rework our idea of what our spiritual practice is so that it's more active and more responsive and more engaged with the social issues and the economic and cultural issues of the time. Otherwise, those spiritual practices that in Japan, you know, keep in mind in Japan there are more monasteries than convenience stores, that uh, they're going to be outdated if they can't respond to these kind of issues, uh, just as the churches here are, you know, emptying out. In meditation practice, one of the things that I've learned over and over again is that stories are repetitive. And anybody who tries and sits still knows that if you sit still and you follow your breath within two minutes, you're neurotic. You're spinning around in the same old stories, and most of us have five or six really good stories, or really bad stories. One's usually about money, one's about sex, one's about family, one's about the future, and one's about the past. And then, as we age, we just plug different content into the, those same stories. And so one of the questions that really inspires me and inspires me also about Ian's work is this idea of if in meditation practice you're learning how to let go of old stories by seeing them as stories and then allowing for some new perspective to show up which basically means freedom really has to do with having a choice in the moment so that you're not just recreating the same reaction. So one of the things that inspires me about Ian's work is this idea that you don't have to go searching around the culture for new stories, necessarily. We have to look in the culture for places where the old stories are breaking down. And if you keep following that, which takes some patience, I think, 
you'll start to find the seeds of the new stories in the crumbling of the old ones. So if we know how the dynamics of letting go of stories works in a person's meditation practice, the question is how do you scale that up for the culture? And that I don't understand. But that's the question that I hope people who see the film will start thinking about, is if we know at an individual level how we can work with our addiction, how do you scale that up to a culture addicted to repetitive narratives that are really stale and becoming more and more fragile? So certain people have different responses to what they see going on, whether it's those that feel you know there's nothing good in the dominant culture, and they want to flee, or they want to uh, not participate in any fashion, you know, this type of uh, reaction to a lot of things which are quite disturbing, right, that's going on. But I think it's important to also look at, well, where does new growth come from? Where does life come from? And one of my other teachers, Stephen Jenkinson, has this beautiful metaphor that his altar in his way of being and on his land is the compost pile. That's his altar. And it's because he knows that that's where death goes to then feed life. And that all of these new things that we're creating and imagining and building can only come from the, the dying of this, of the current dominant culture, from the composting of it. And I love that as a metaphor for what's going on rather than this sort of, you know, judgment that all of it is bad, but recognizing that like everything, it has a um, expiry date, it's impermanent. And what are we going to plant now that we may not even see the end of? In fact, that's the only thing I think you actually have to go on, that these impacts of the actions that we're making today, the seeds that we're planting today, you know, very likely most of us won't even see how they'll emerge down in the future, but we still have to have the faith that they will. My father is fairly apolitical. And when I was involved in the Occupy movement, I didn't talk about it much with him. But then there was a picture of me there in the Globe and Mail, and he was on an airplane, and he said, what? (laughs) So he called me, and he said, I read the article... I started following what was going on in New York City, and I have to say two things. One is, they're right. No matter what my politics are, he said, nobody can argue with the fact that losses in the banking system have been socialized and that inequality is now on the table for mainstream media to talk about. So he said if there was one success that he's seeing, it's that we can talk about inequality. But he said, the other thing is, I'm scared. And I don't really know what that means. But he said, in my heart, what I'm seeing is the truth. And equally, I'm really scared of it, because I don't know what it means. And uh, I share that feeling. I, I feel optimistic. If you travel as much as I do, and you meet human beings all over the world doing great things, it's so inspiring. But if you hang out with scientists, which I do also, (laughs) it's a catastrophe. And I think somehow we need to have the resilience, like the compost pile, of holding both those things. That to go to Japan is in some ways a story about heroism. But in another way, it was also a practice of not knowing and walking into something we had no idea how to engage with and being scared. And every day I feel both those things, this kind of sense that there is so much possible and I'm worried about it. And I hope that people who are listening to the show also are able to allow in both those feelings together 
this sense that, oh, things can change. And also, oh, this is also kind of terrifying because I, I don't know what's going to be there. And it can be scary to be in a country that is dealing with radiation problems and thinking about, you know, is this in my food? Is this spreading around to my family? How will this manifest throughout my life? And now we're hearing where we're recording at the end of August um, in 2013, and we're hearing that at Fukushima, they just raised the alert level to a higher nuclear disaster because there's still radioactive water leaking out of the plant. And Japan is calling on international help and saying, you know, we really don't know what to do in this situation. And so the fear is very real. But there's also a lot of people who are reacting in fear. And there's a lot of people who are waking up and saying this isn't working. They're having these awakenings. So I was wondering if you saw any examples in Japan or just any examples as, as you're traveling around of people who are having that awakening and then putting it into something that can network with others who are having that feeling or building something on top of that because it can be very isolating. Yeah, there was a conversation we had with uh, this uh, one woman, Jen Mertens, who had lived in Japan for a number of years and she told her story about her friends and what had happened after the, the earthquake and then Fukushima and certainly the fear around, um, you know, is there going to be radiation poisoning and, and how... You know, should we evacuate Tokyo and all this stuff? And then once that had sort of coalesced into, you know, sort of a low-level, low-grade fear, she started to see change happen in ways that she couldn't have anticipated. And in her, in the case of her friends, you know, one friend came out of the closet that had been, you know, hiding it for so long. Another friend proposed to somebody that they, you know, had secretly been in love with. And so somebody, other people left their job. Other people maybe did leave. But she started to see basically all these things that people were, say, afraid to do. Now they were doing it. Because maybe there was the sense of the precariousness of life that maybe uh, you know tomorrow could be the last. Therefore, it's not good enough to to we don't wait around for the right time. So we saw that kind of thing happening a lot. And I think that particularly among artists, like um, this one fellow from Chimpom, who we interviewed in the film, you know, he talked to us about their their response to the the Fukushima and how they ended up sneaking into the uh, plant and actually recording the whole thing and and spray painting these the Japanese flag and then adding these radiation symbols to it and you know holding it above the damaged plant and then of course releasing that online and that further catalyzed other artists other activists so there is this sense though that not knowing what the impact will be of of the actions but listening to you know what goes on inside and and this desire to respond that's that's kind of how I saw the activation. One of the things that came up for me in Japan, too, was starting to notice in people's responses how there's a big difference between caring about an issue and caring for something. And you hear that a lot in our language. Sometimes we'll say something like, I care a lot about the election. But that's not the same thing as saying, I really care for the election or I really care for this issue. Caring about seems to keep us a little bit dissociated and it allows us to kind of hover over a situation and be conceptual around it. And to me, the language that I'm trying to listen for now in people describing their relationship to issues or policy or just personal crises or any kind of suffering is when they hit that spot where they really care for something. Because there's an intimacy there between feeling the suffering of someone else's life or feeling the suffering of the environment 
and wanting to do something about it, wanting to roll up your sleeves and, and take action. And to me, compassion without action is um, a little bit hollow, you know. So I'm interested in a kind of compassion that's active. So that means that if compassion is active and it's personal, it's going to look different for different kinds of people. So one person might decide, our family is not going to eat fish anymore because we're worried about the radioactivity of fish. And their kid might say, oh, well, how are fish caught? Where do fish come from? Oh, where's the nuclear power plant? Another person's activism might become calligraphy because we all know that it's not just animals that are going extinct, it's also language. Everything's turning into English. One of the things that came up a lot in Japan, actually, was you'd go into older restaurants in Kyoto and there'd be amazing calligraphy on the menu. And then you'd go into the newer restaurants and the handwritten calligraphy was replaced with the same symbols, but that came out of a computer. And you really lose something about the intimacy of the dining experience when you don't see the handwriting of the chef. So the point is, is that activism can show up in so many different ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be tying yourself to a tree, although for one person that might be the response. But this twinning of allowing yourself to care and care enough deeply that you want to do something about it, that's the kind of language I'm listening for now when I talk to people in their response to current events. Because we're so inundated with all the issues, you know, you just turn on the news from, you know, Syria to Egypt to Fukushima, there's, you know, stuff going on all the time that we hear about. And, you know, in a way is asking us to care, but it at the same time is more of a blunt object hitting us all the time to feel sadness, to feel despair, and, and not really giving us a sense that we can do something about it. And so, I think it's important for someone to really be able to shut all that out and then look at, okay, what is the thing that I feel most of service to? Because I think activism is just as hollow if it's, I mean, it can be egoic, it can be about old wounds, it can be about a lot of things going on where it can just be not willing to face that which is asking for attention within you. And it can create this sort of, the cliched guilt, you know, angry activist. And I think it's important for us to look at being of service to that which you care deeply about does look different for everybody. But you know when you're doing it because it fills you, I think, with this sense of um, certainly meaning, but also it energizes you, it fuels you in a way that if it's simply egoic, it, it's not there. And so the beautiful thing about connected, deeply grounded activist response that can be imaginative, that can be creative, is that it has its own fuel cell built in. And it's certainly what I found uh, with my work. So I have to let you both go to the film premiere, but I wanted to just give you an opportunity to, to close out and talk about something that you brought back with you from this journey in Japan that you are seeing or noticing more while you're traveling around in other places and how people can follow your work and find your next projects. The biggest lesson for me in Japan was that what gives meaning to my life is just to take the risk of caring deeply about something and that I don't have to make the perfect decision. I don't have to set myself up for the perfect response. In each moment I can respond, see how it lands, be intimate with that moment, and then not hold on to it. In Japan there was a phrase I learned called ichie ichigo, 
which is one meeting, one chance. In each situation, there's one meeting possible, there's one chance to respond. But then, if the response is not the right response, it's not the right response. And then you learn something from that and you move on. And as a younger activist for me, I was so committed to nonviolence. And my commitment to nonviolence became this thin filter that actually obscured what was in front of me because I felt like I had such a specific way that I had to respond to the situation. And in a way I felt kind of stiff, you know? So this trip to Japan kind of freed me up in a way to see that I really need to lead with a part of me that doesn't know. Because if I trust that, a response will come. And if it's not the right response, it's okay. Because in the next moment, there's another meeting and another chance. And maybe I'll add that the, one of the most significant moments uh, that I experienced, Michael and I, uh, we were at a, a monastery and we went and found the, the abbot of the monastery. And his older fellow and Michael was asking him about the Bodhisattva vow, which is the vow essentially to, to serve the liberation of all sentient beings. And we were asking him, Michael was asking him about, you know, what he thought about it. You know, what was his take on the Bodhisattva vow? And there was a conversation there, but it essentially the response seemed to be that the Bodhisattva is committed to taking care of things. And that this idea that we need these grand heroic responses all the time, uh, or, or sorry, to build up to this grand heroic response, is itself, I think, this desire that's unrealistic and, and built not from a place that is being attentive and aware of what's unfolding right in front of them. And so for those watching the film and for listening to this podcast, to just develop a sense of, of listening attentiveness to what's going on in their own lives and their own relationships and start to see, you know, where am I asleep? Uh, where can I be of service? And the response will emerge. You'll know it. Fantastic. So websites, other things, other projects that you're working on. There. Yeah, for Reactor, uh, check out reactorfilm.com. There's the trailer. We're doing a decentralized release of the film. So if you'd like to have it in your sangha, in your yoga studio, living room, you know, theater, go check it out. You can order the DVD. Uh, pretty soon you'll be able to stream it as well, right online. And uh, as far as other projects, there's too many to talk about right now. <laughs> My interest right now is how to articulate these ancient contemplative practices that I learned in monastic environments to a younger generation of people with a postmodern sensibility, especially an urban and young generation that see spiritual practice as a life of being engaged rather than the dropout culture that I grew up with. And my interest now is how to reach those young kids who really want to make a difference and don't know how to start and see that the world is just as broken as their own hearts and that both need to be addressed. I have a website, uh, centerofgravity.org, and you can check out more there.
because you're not fully alive now, you think maybe someday you will be. Look, supposing I ask you, what did you do yesterday? Most people will say, well, let me see now. Let me get out my notebook. I got up at uh, 7.30 and I brushed my teeth and I read the newspaper over a cup of coffee and then I looked at the clock and dressed and uh, got in the car and drove downtown and did this and that in the office and so on and you go on and on and on and you suddenly discover that what you've described has absolutely nothing to do with what happened. You've described a scraggly, skeletal, fleshless list of abstractions. Whereas if you were actually aware of what went on, you could never describe it. Because nature is multidimensional. Language is linear. Language is scrawny. And therefore, if you identify the world as it is, with the way the world is described, it's as if you were trying to eat dollar bills and expect a nutritious diet. Or eat numbers. A lot of people eat numbers. People play the stock market. They're doing nothing but eating numbers. And they're always unhappy. Absolutely miserable. Because they never get anything. So, therefore, they always hope more is coming. Because they believe that if they eat enough dollar bills, eventually, something satisfactory will happen. So, eating the abstractions all the time. We want more, more, more time. Confucius very wisely said, a man who understands the Tao in the morning may die with content in the evening. Because when you understand, you don't put your hope in time. Time won't solve a thing. So the idea here will be to try and communicate between ourselves to create a slightly different kind of reality than everybody else is hanging out in. Mostly, I hope, our reality will have more hope than the generic reality that's going on outside. Because I think that there's a lot of data on the table now, more information than ever before. And we can actually begin to figure out what's going on, not in terms of the first three milliseconds of the universe, but actually, you know, what is going on on this planet? What is human history? What is a cognizing species doing running around by the billions on the surface of this planet, obsessed with religions and driven by vice and hatred and visionary longing? This is not uh, what they talk about in the biology books, still less is it what they talk about in the physical chemistry books. And something has torn loose on the surface of this planet and we are embedded in it, and we are it, and it is sweeping us and all life on this planet into some kind of apotheosis, some kind of shit-hit-the-fan situation where all the uh, hopes and dreams and fears and obsessions are going to be held up. Perhaps, you know, it could have been stopped in the 12th century or the 6th century, but now technical processes, population growth, information transfer, destruction of the environment. We have the great dying is well underway. And the question is, does this make sense? And an even more cogent question, can it be made to make sense? In other words, can we come to, in the situation of a planet sinking into chaos, and somehow run around and punch some buttons and close off some areas and salvage something.
can meaning be salvaged? Or is the process that has gone on over the last, uh, you pick a number, but it's in the billions of years, essentially meaningless, dumb show and uh, absurdity? The really freaky thing about this, I think, is that it's not clear that it seems to rest in the domain of human decision that the universe is not at all what we suppose it to be and that we are in effect presented with a three-dimensional, four-dimensional, eleven-dimensional koan, a labyrinth, a puzzle, a kind of conundrum which has to be cut through and it's all done in the mind. This is what they don't tell you uh, in the philosophy departments or the, or the physics department. Next up on The Extra Environmentalist, we're talking with Willem Fawarda of the Ecosystem Return Foundation on using financial resources to scale up ecosystem restoration. It is, of course, a difficult thing. Businesses until now are mainly about damaging and destroying ecosystems. But increasingly, some companies are going to understand that what we call ecosystem services or ecosystem functions are important for their resource base. Um, If you talk about food companies, if you talk about water companies and energy companies, you see an increasing understanding of what an ecosystem is and how it works. Unfortunately, we are only in the start of this whole, what we call, transformation phase. And we have to show them, and with we, I mean ecologists, have to show them that we can restore degraded areas and that we can even have a profit with it. Not a a huge profit, but more long-term profit, which is a profit financially, but also a profit for society and, of course, a profit for what we call the natural capital. And if we don't start with helping those companies in understanding how these systems work, it will take much more time before they find that out. So we have to create new partnerships and learn and teach them that the old way of doing business, especially around ecosystems, is no longer a valuable option. So for a very long time, businesses have used resources and natural resources much like they would uh, any other kind of resource. They, there's a, a, a systematic disregard for um, yes. resources in terms of um, value to the environment, really. And it's more about how you can exploit the resources that you're given to mm-hmm. make a profit. Yeah. How, do we, how do we begin that mind change to make people or make businesses realize that conserving resources is not a, necessarily a bad thing and it helps the world and it's, it's really good for what the planet needs? What we see is that there's a movement of what I call young people. I call them urban enthusiasts, so people from the urban areas who really want to change things. I also see that due to the international communication, internet and so on, it's going very fast that people become aware of these problems. John Liu with his film, it makes people aware what is really happening with the system. So increasingly you get people who became 
specialists in system thinking. They connect things to each other. They connect a degraded ecosystem to food chains or to water or to biodiversity or to climate change or to poverty. And that is important. So you get an awareness raising and companies cannot escape from this any longer. And the companies who do understand this process will move faster than others who, who are still on the track of business as usual. So I'm quite optimistic about this development, which we are now foreseeing coming 10, 15 years. I'm firmly believing in systematic changes of companies to step into ecological restoration. So many of the models that people have in their heads about how a business operates comes from their time studying either economics or finance or studying business at university. So how would you start changing what students learn in business schools to start providing these businesses that operate on a principle of ecosystem restoration? This is a difficult task. Um, what I've learned over the last few years is when business schools here in the Netherlands, but also elsewhere, I slowly understood that, that the lack of knowledge there about ecology, they didn't know almost anything about how ecosystems work or about the importance of ecology for companies and for e economics. I think that's a firm belief. If we can enter business schools and we can increase the knowledge of ecology and the dependence on ecosystems and the whole planetary boundaries work of the Stockholm Resilience Center, if we can get that into the business schools, then we create a new generation of business leaders who will make different decisions, decisions based on sustaining ecosystems or even restoring ecosystems for the benefit of society and also the benefit of their companies. What I've discovered here is that there is a huge amount of different companies and that family companies, family businesses are very different than companies who have a shareholder system. And that means that I'm also focusing on getting more family companies on board on this and work with them to convince the importance of ecology uh, towards those companies who have a more short-term thinking because of their shareholder system. What we see in Europe, for instance, is that increasingly family companies are dominating the field of sustainability due to the fact that shareholder system is still good for quick wins, good for short-term profit, and, and that the systemic thinking, the holistic thinking in, in corporations is, is difficult to maintain. I think it's really cool that at Rotterdam that you have a, a business school that's forward thinking in bringing ecology into the curriculum. But I can imagine that there would be a lot of business schools that maybe wouldn't realize that importance. What would you say to them about the importance of changing their curriculum if you were to sit down with business school director and uh, trying to convince them as to why they should include ecology in the curriculum. Mm, yeah, no, actually, that's not a very difficult thing. I mean, if you go to a business school and you ask, okay, who are the founders of your business school? Quite often, there are some huge corporations who founded such a business school, whether you are in Madrid or in Singapore, it doesn't matter. And that you just explain what ecology means for those huge corporations, if they're mining companies or beverage companies or retailers, it, there's always a linking ping. And if you sit down with the chair of the board, you can easily point out that all those corporations depend hugely on ecosystem services and let's say the functions of healthy ecosystems. But the fact is they just don't know. They have been raised in a linear way. That means those people have been trained and raised in a way to get to be very efficient, 
in getting the profit as high as possible from a product and a marketing system, which is not always coherent to the, the system approach of, of ecologists. So it's about learning their language and speaking their language. Um, they have to learn, in a way, also my language as an ecologist. And and they are convinced that they have to do something. And they are now also convinced that ecology should be part of the curriculum, although we have to find out where and how and so on. I'm convinced of that. We cannot escape from this topic. It's the future. You brought up an interesting point in your last comment about family companies and the corporations, and I wanted to dive into that a little bit more. You were talking about the quick win with corporations and how the perspective for these companies with, that are in corporations are very short. I'm wondering how we go about shifting that perspective from, say, like the four-year cycle or the one-year budgetary cycle to a longer cycle because I think that in many aspects of humanity this is the one of the core problems is thinking about the long-term perspective the 50 to 100 year perspective our great great grandchildren looking at those kind of perspectives instead of the one year the four year cycle this is difficult for people whether they are in, in corporations or in politics it is very difficult to understand that we have to move towards longer cycles long-term cycles and I think it has also something to do with the human brain. And, and that means we are, as a species also, in, in an evolutionary state that we are going to learn how to handle these long-term cycles. Large corporations, and especially oil corporations, mining corporations, they think in 20 or 30 years. They have to make an investment uh, over these kind of periods. So it's not new. Also, infrastructure works if you want to, you know, build roads and railways and so on. These are huge infrastructure projects and people can think and can plan 10 or 15 years ahead. So it's not new. We just have to integrate that thinking into all kinds of our life cycles and product cycles. Right now, we see Europe's economy facing a very serious crisis in countries like Spain with severe unemployment, like 26.7%, yeah. I think, were the latest numbers. So if we started working from this model of creating an economy based on ecosystem restoration, what kind of jobs would be available to people? And are there links between this greater financial crisis in Europe and ecosystem degradation? 10 million hectares being degraded out there in Spain, which is huge, with topsoil loss in some parts of Spain of even 25 tons of topsoil per hectare per year. Can you imagine? That means that Spain, it has not only an economic crisis, it has a severe ecological crisis as well. You have water scarcity and you have deserts, the Sahara coming north. So... Spain is in a severe crisis. Therefore, the ecological restoration embraced by companies, but with support of, of science and NGOs and, and farmers, can, can really create new opportunities, create new jobs. Restoring the degraded hilly sites of Spain means that you bring native species of oak trees back, that you restore the water table, that you restore degraded agricultural lands and that you can bring agriculture back in places where it was gone for the last 30 or 40 or 50 or even longer. So I think for the case of Spain, there are so many opportunities. The only thing we have to do there is invest in the topsoil and invest in the degraded lands. And we're not talking about huge amounts of money, especially not compared to the amounts of money which were lost because of misinvestments over the last 10, 15 years in Spain. 
they, they invested in bricks and they invested in all kinds of infrastructural things which are now worthless. If you invest in Spain, for instance, per hectare, uh, between 500 and 1500 dollars per hectare only once, you can restore the land and increase agriculture production within five to 10 years. And you not only create new jobs, but you also create a new green infrastructure, you will create new waterways, and you create the increasement of the water table and the aquifers, which means that also the artificial lakes for hydroelectricity will be better off. And finally, you will create a new vegetation. You create forests in places where the forest has been gone for ages. And that means you finally also create a new cloud creation. Spain is an excellent opportunity to do this. We can now restore all this land and give people jobs restoring large tracts of space where before they were exploiting it and, and destroying it. Is this what's going to emerge? Yeah, I think so. You can even say if you do it in the right way, you can talk about a green restoration industry. But it's important that you do it from the ecosystem perspective. So it is all about knowing where you are going to plant or restore the system. So knowledge, ecological knowledge is very important. If you plant the wrong species of tree on the wrong place, you really make it worse. That's what we've done, for instance, in many places on the planet with the eucalyptus plantations, for instance. So you need to know where are you going to plant native trees, where are you going to plant production trees or production species, what kind of percentages of the land should be ecological corridors, and so on and so on. So it's kind of creating new partnership with ecologists, agriculture science, and with the financials right in place. And you bring up financials, and I wanted to talk about financials, because if I were to want to start a company that focused on, say, you know, permaculture approaches to restoring land, most banks that I would go into would probably say, one, what is permaculture? What is ecosystem restoration? Why is that important? And then I'd show them my projections for my business model, and they'd say, whoa, your, your rate of return is too low. I don't think we can fund you. How do you get past that barrier to actually funding these businesses that are focused on restoring ecosystem functions? That's an excellent question. You have to find out where's the low-hanging fruit. And that means where is soil very cheap? Where is the land so degraded? And what kind of tools do you need to get it green again? Then the question is, is permaculture the best way to doing that? Or are there other methods uh, you can use? Those questions you have to find out first. And then, of course, is the political situation stable enough and so on and so on and so on. But there are some banks and there are some institutions which can be helpful in this matter. You have development banks. Sometimes you can make the right combination of local governments who are interested because of creating jobs, for instance, like in Spain, we've just mentioned. So you have to find the right place where you can do this and then come up with a plan also, some partners have shown their interest. If you go as an NGO or as a local small company to a bank and present a plan without being well embedded in a national and international network, I think it will be difficult to start it. But if you can show that there are more partners behind you and also companies and business schools, then you create a new movement. But you're right, it is difficult to identify the first projects where commercial banks or commercial investors would, would say, wow, we are going to do this. But I think if one or two projects have been established with 
private money, then others will follow. So it's really about that partnership between a large number of actors and getting non-profit organizations on board with for-profit organizations to demonstrate yeah. that it works, to change that perception. Yeah, and there's another thing. Long term, don't step in the trap that you can do ecological restoration in four or five years. You can do a lot, but you should have a long-term agenda. That's why I, I mentioned 20 years. We still can understand how long 20 years is as a company and you know as investors. And for ecologists, it's still okay. 40 years would be better, but 20 years, you can cut it down in pieces of four or five years and start doing it. But it's important that we always keep the 20 years time frame in, in our thinking. You mentioned that it, it's private money that gets behind these projects. Would it be possible to have some kind of public funding for this, you know, grants or something yeah. to just get it kickstarted? Can governments yeah, yeah. take a hand? Yeah, of course. That's even better. Of course, if you get it kickstarted by some public money, that's good, or lottery money or charity money or whatever. But still, the driver should, I think, should be private money. Why? Because if we only depend on politics or on charities, we will never be able to scale it up. We need strong powers and forces to scale this up. That means that we need private money and we also need to showcase that it is possible to make profit with it. And I think we can make profit with ecological restoration if we can show that we can turn very degraded lands or degraded deserts into productive areas based on restoring the ecosystem functions. That we need to understand what kind of functions those systems had in the past. And that means ecological science is crucial to have that involved ecology science. Otherwise, the project will never be a success on the long run. So I'm wondering about once you finally carry out this restoration project and you have a number of, say, public and private partners on board to make it happen, how do you generate the profits from that? Because so many of the benefits go to the ecosystem and the people who live there, but they may not necessarily be expressed in financial or monetary terms to make it happen. Yeah. That is a difficult thing, but that's why you have to do it based on a location so you can identify how many hectares will be used for ecology, for natural capital, for let's say the ecological corridor, how many hectares are there for local people to get their benefits, and which options are there for companies or investors or even pension funds to get a return back after 10 or 15 or 20 years. And it might even be biofuels, but only under certain circumstances. It might also be that the price of land for real estate will go up because you create value where there wasn't any value in the land before. But that means it is a tailor-made system. And while you're doing this, maybe new profits will turn up, which you haven't been thinking about before. Tourism, for instance, or hunting, or carbon. I think the driver is that we create value on land which lost its value over the last decades or centuries. It is a tailor-made process. And, you know, if we can do these kind of processes, we have infrastructural large projects worldwide. And this is just similar. This is also an infrastructural project. I didn't say it's easy. And moving entrenched powers into new directions is always a really tough gig. I'm wondering, we've been talking a lot about desertification and how deserts suck up a lot of resources, make land not valuable anymore. 
I'm wondering if deserts themselves have any kind of ecological value in landscapes. Is there a reason that deserts form other than human interaction with the landscape? Is there a, some kind of restorative reason to have a desert in an ecological system? Mm, now, let, let's distinguish man-made deserts and natural deserts. We have deserts in places like Namibia or uh, New Mexico, which are natural deserts. Those natural deserts are ecosystems on themselves. They have a ecological dynamics. You cannot compare those deserts with many places in the Middle East or in Central Asia and also in Central South America, which are man-made, especially in the Mediterranean region. This whole region was covered by forests. When the Romans were living there, it was covered by forests. When the Romans came into Spain or in Egypt, they came there because of the huge opportunities for agriculture. And even in places like Kuwait and Jordan, we know that many of those places are savanna or steppe-like landscapes. They are quite often man-made deserts that are caused by decades or centuries of overgrazing. So, yes, we can leave the natural deserts and uh, their great places and they have their, their own biodiversity. But with man-made deserts, and there are many places in the world, we should bring them back in a way that they can produce again much more than they're producing now for men and for biodiversity. And you brought up pension funds and institutional investments a moment ago. These are very large pools of money that do have to take in a different mindset from corporations, a much longer term perspective on how they invest because they're investing for maybe the retirement of everybody who's in that company or that organization. How could you sit down with an, an institutional investment fund manager and start talking about this idea of investing in restoration? Because I see that as a potential leverage point to actually make something happen. But then the challenge is that because of that fiduciary responsibility, the institutional investors are very conservative in their approach quite often. So how do you get past that? Oh, yeah. No, yeah that's again a good point. Actually, we are talking to one of the largest pension funds here in the Netherlands, and we are identifying the possibility to create a kind of restoration fund. But what I've discovered is it's, first of all, we speak different languages. They speak a language I, first of all, I didn't understand well. And they thought that I was speaking kind of abacadabra with my, you know, ecological jargon. So that was the first step we, need to be, we needed to take, is how to synchronize or how to understand each other. And the second one was then, of course, where are the areas and what is the return? Uh, they are indeed conservative. So what is the proof that it works? What kind of tools do we need? Is permaculture is one tool. We we have the water box, which is another tool, which is a, a device to plant trees without irrigation. So you have several tools to re-green land. And then the whole issue of land tenure will come up. Uh, what I've realized is that these fund managers are very much interested in increasing the value of land for real estate, for instance, in the Mediterranean. And uh, if you can increase the land prices in 30 years, land which has no value now and will have a value within 30 or 25 years, then that means something for them. And they understand that. And there's another thing, and that is increasingly those pension funds are asked to be more active in sustainable activities. And there's another opportunity. But the first step is 
learn to speak with each other so that we understand what we mean. And we are in the process now of forming a team to identify the possibilities to have pension funds involved in restoration. I really like that idea. I think that's a very positive thing because a lot of times people don't even realize where their money is going when you give it to a mutual fund or to a pension fund. And, you know, everyone's contributing to that pension fund and it's getting matched, but you're not really sure where that matching funds is coming from or how it's getting funded. There's a lot of opportunity in this vein, it feels like, because you're going to have all that technology that's going to be applied to this problem. And as we were talking about before, there's a lot of business opportunity to help restore these areas. Yeah, no, you're right. And But it is finding out where the low-hanging fruit is and, and where, you know, which countries the risk are very low and so on and so on. We are making a whole list of criteria and then find out where can we start. And we can start somewhere with only a small you could say opportunity investment fund, then we can see how that works and we can learn from it and continue with larger funds later on. But I think that pension funds will step into restoration with the coming one or two years. And that will be a, a huge new opportunity to scale up restoration fast. Now, I wanted to talk about some examples that you've seen embodying either part or all of what we've been talking about today around the world, different pieces that have you excited. We spoke with John Liu about some of the projects that he's been involved in, like the Loche Plateau, which is really incredible. But I was just wondering of, of any other examples that you wanted to bring up here. There are many small examples. And the Loche Plateau, of course, in China, is one of the unique examples where we see scaling up uh, but driven by a government and started by a World Bank subsidy or a loan. But there are many small-scale NGO projects everywhere, whether it's mangrove restoration in the Philippines by Wetlands International or a Savannah restoration with this Ellen Savory Institute in, in the plains of the United States. You see it everywhere popping up, but it is small. There are some examples which are bigger, for instance, in the Patagonia Plains in Chile, you have Doc Tompkins Conservation Trust. They restored more than a million hectares, including agriculture, and they are now creating protected areas with economic activity in Argentina and Chile, and they will give it back to the government. That is done by a private family, the, the founder of Esprit in Patagonia. So you see increasingly activities on the front. In the Netherlands, for instance, we have created a network of ecological corridors and that started in the 1990s by the government, but increasingly also with participation of, uh, of uh, local and non-governmental organizations. So the whole issue of restoration is popping up, but it's still too small. Um, the ecological thinking which we need uh, also to be reflected in companies and large investors is not yet there, but this will come, this will come. And then we can just pick up all those small-scale projects and trying to find out how can we scale them up. And that's what I would like to do. So build upon the existing projects and scale them up. In the United Nations, we talk about genocide and war and restrictions that were put on different countries because of different activities that they make. How come these kind of ideas are not brought up in the UN? How come these kind of ideas are not made to be a top priority around the world? Is it because they are not necessarily conducive to business at the moment and people don't really want to focus on them or what's the bigger picture here? That, it's a difficult one. In the United Nations system, you have the United Nations Convention to combat desertification 
and you have UNEP, the United Nations Environmental Program, and they all publish good reports and are very active in this field. The UNCCD, the Convention to Combat Desertification, is increasingly becoming popular, I think. They were not in the forefront of the last decades, but I think they are coming up now and get more attention. But it is difficult because it takes time. And other points on the agenda of the UN, uh, civil wars, threats, poverty, climate change, have always got more attention. But I, my feeling is that this changing, but is going slow. And maybe the UN system is also slow. I mean, it, it's a slow system. So we need additional powers here. We need additional support from, from willing people outside the UN system, working in the NGO and private sector world. We just need them. The whole framework and the whole the conditions and the criteria, they're all known. We have published papers and papers on these kind of issues. And every day you can go to these kind of conferences. But we need action in the field. And I was wondering about um, the context of current companies and current money systems that exist. Are they really compatible with the long-term thinking we've been talking about and thinking about the context of ecosystem restoration? Or are we going to need lots of new entrepreneurship and lots of new companies launched that do this sort of process? Yeah, I think both. I mean, talking about this, this young urban enthusiastic people. John is, is meeting everywhere in the world now, John Liu, when he's giving his presentations. And quite often I've been speaking with him about it, how to motivate those people, how to get them on board, and how to get them doing good things. What you increasingly see is that these new entrepreneurial people start companies with a social goal and still make some profit, social entrepreneurs, and they make new combination easier than people before, also due to internet and the global communications. So I think we need and we will certainly get new companies doing this, but meanwhile we need to get the old companies, the mining and oil companies, the energy companies on board, because they can scale up things. If Shell and Total and Chevron and Texaco and so on, if they really step into this and only one or maybe 5% of their annual turnover will go into restoration, we can make huge changes. And even if we talk about shale gas, for instance, which is now coming up everywhere in the world, you know, it's a new energy source. If we have to accept that shale gas is is there and will not go away for the coming decades, how can we make a combination that you drill shale gas in ecologically very degraded areas and that the percentage of the venue will go into restoring those areas because then you have something which might be a win situation. Although I know that, that this is a difficult topic and a sensitive topic as well. I've heard quotes that say that science only moves forward whenever in the old generation no longer exists. So the entrenched power goes away, yeah. new generations take over, and science moves forward. Yeah. Do you think that this was the same kind of situation as people of Justin and Maya's generation maybe take control and the reins of power, that these kind of ideas will be more incorporated? Yeah. Here again, we have a lot of older people with very good ideas and a lot of knowledge. We should use them and then move forward with the younger generation just by doing this. Because as I said before, there's so much known now. We just have to do it. It's not that we don't know it. We can restore the degraded areas. We know how long it will take. We know what benefits will come from it. But why don't we do it? My opinion is that in general, we don't do it because we have to create new partnerships. And that means we have to get out of our silos. And maybe 
to get out of our silos, we need a new generation. Maybe that is true. But still, some of the older generation, they know how to get out of their silos. But unfortunately, many don't know anything about it. And I'm afraid if we do not change business schools and do not change the educational system, we still remain disconnected. We will still have a disconnection between man and nature. And this is the essence of this all. We need to reconnect man with nature so that man will understand how nature works and can learn from it, know that it's possible to restore it, know that it's easy and cheap to conserve natural systems, uh, because that's actually the most cheapest way of doing it. Just conserve those important systems which sustain humanity. Yeah, it's, it's a psychological thing as well, getting people out of their silos. And that's a good point about getting people out of their silos, because that means so many partnerships don't form if you're really just going to the same conferences with the same people and publishing in the same field. And I find in universities, it's so hard to get, for example, business schools and the ecologists and the biologists to talk to each other because they're all working in such different areas. But in building on that, I was wondering, because we're coming up uh, close to the end here of our time today, if you could kind of lay out your broader vision for what an economy built on restoration looks like, let's say 15, 20 years down the road, we get pension funds that are investing in this, we get maybe some kind of carbon pricing mechanism that's contributing to funds that's restoring ecosystems that's sequestering carbon. What kind of jobs would people have? What kind of institutions of education would we have that exist in this economy of restoration? I think there is a mixed situation. You see that agriculture will be becoming more important, and especially clean agriculture, based on all kinds of findings of the science of, of ecology and biodiversity. I think there will be a high tech as well, which is good, but still people will understand better what ecology is for the benefit of their products, of their company and themselves. So the jobs you will have, you will probably have more jobs in land and land conservation and agriculture. You will probably have a lot of urban agriculture as well. I foresee a lot of biodiversity in, let's say, activities that increase biodiversity in cities that may mean also that we see new exotic species popping up in all kinds of cities you know as you have parrots in in many cities already more of these species will they'll be included in the urban areas i see green buildings with green energy and so on but also with biodiversity and species outside the buildings uh, a lot of edible species as well and the huge infrastructural works done by engineers with ecosystem knowledge everywhere in the world to getting degraded areas restored again. So I foresee an ecosystem industry popping up over the coming decades. As an optimist, I, I see that. As a pessimist, you may still have lots of conflicts and wars going on due to all kinds of belief systems. But uh, as an optimist, I hope that we come over that and we will accept that there are different belief systems here in the world uh, and that there's only one belief system, which is very important. That is that we believe that we need to be connected to nature to survive on this planet. I I will continue working with with business schools and I'm trying to to set up projects where companies and pension funds will be included. And uh, let's hope maybe in one year, if we talk again, for instance, that we can show some cases where this will work.
And that closes out our conversation with Willem Ferwerda of the Ecosystem Return Foundation about the potential to create regenerative business models by creating businesses that are able to restore ecological function rather than degrade it. Seth, so many of the business models that we see in the world today are destroying the planet and the big corporate structures that exist in our world seem to be hellbent on taking every last available resource and turning it into financial profit. What do you think when you hear something like being able to invest in ecosystem restoration? Do you think that that's even possible? Do you think it's something that we'll have to do and figure it out no matter what? Or do you think it falls into the category of greenwashing? I think, Justin, that is your second option. It's something that is inevitable. It's something that's coming down the line that we are going to have to learn to deal with. And whether that means that we're going to have to take a less profit return on some of our investments, like we talked about some of the pension funds, that's not going to really give you the same kind of return as opening up a third world country per se. These are just going to be be the realities that we're going to have to deal with. A smaller growth world uh, has a lot less income that that is generated. So these are these are ideas that are going to be inevitable and these are things that are going to be happening. And as Willem talked about that there is a large market for this kind of work to be done. There's all sorts of places where we can improve living conditions where we can make green landscapes a available to the larger population. This is beneficial to all of humanity. And Justin, what did you have to what did you think about having a generation pass away before we can actually have meaningful improvements in the in our world? I think to some extent that's very much the problem we're stuck with is that the generation of business that has been created is one that is not aware of the magnitude of ecological challenges in the world today. And I think that the business community and governments are starting to understand the magnitude of climate change and how serious it really is if we continue attempts at business as usual for another decade. It really is going to cause a true climate catastrophe far beyond the wild weather and, you know, crazy droughts and crazy rains that we have now, something that may even destroy the potential for agriculture to exist because our weather becomes so unstable. And so with the new IPCC report that's coming out, actually, as we record this show, we'll see in more detail how severe things really are. But it doesn't Even understanding climate change doesn't necessarily mean you understand the magnitude of energy depletion in peak oil or the problems with water limits in many countries around the world or just issues with overpopulation in general. And the whole idea that in the 80s and 90s, places like the U.S. actively encouraged doing away with, uh, you know, contraceptives in many, many of the non-OECD countries because it created a bigger consumer force for the world. We'll look back on that and realize that that was one of the biggest mistakes that we really could have ever had as a species is getting our population so large. I mean, I really hope that countries begin to understand that having rapidly growing populations are not something to be desired. It's actually setting yourself up for dramatic resource and social issues over the long term. And that's not to say that countries should be encouraging really draconian measures. It's just saying that there's a lot of intelligent strategies that could 
should be applied in order to make sure that populations don't get out of control. A new generation of people who are thinking about these questions is not only inevitable, but it's something that we have to start doing now. And it is so counter to our current models of business and thinking about business that it's going to be nothing short of an absolutely revolutionary mindset that starts to pervade our business schools. And it's exciting to know that people like Willem are thinking about it, but it's a very long road and it's very difficult to get beyond what most people in the business community are thinking about climate change and the environment because a lot of it's based on the idea of green growth and green jobs that, as we've talked about on many of our episodes, are completely misguided and will just exacerbate the problems that we have in our world today. But I do think it's intriguing to consider the possibility that investment funds, perhaps for retirement or other investments, could be put into projects like ecosystem restoration. I just also am wary because there's a lot of consequences that happen when you take large amounts of capital, such as those managed by big investment banks like Barclays and HSBC, and put them into projects. It adds a whole new range of expectations to it, and it takes a tremendous amount of intuition on the behalf of the project managers and on behalf of those who are managing those projects to be able to not allow their entire investment to be overcome with that kind of pressure that exists in the big banking world. So my hat is off to anybody who can navigate that treacherous road. It's not something to be over-exuberant about, but it's also not something to discount entirely in my view. There is always that co-opting attitude that can very very easily take hold. And that's really not the mindset of, of what we're talking about here. This is more of a long-term goal-oriented thing that is looking out for the future of the species instead of the profit line. And that's something that you, it's hard to, to, to divorce yourself from because the capitalistic system and, the, and this mindset of, of gain and wealth and expansion is so much a part of what it means to be a part of, of the system. And making yourself think in a different way is very, very difficult. And this really is the cutting-edge ideas in business thinking how to create these business models and it's not like people have the answers so as you said when we started this discussion Seth I think I agree that you know it's inevitable we're going to have to figure this out if we want to have any chance at doing the kinds of things that we discussed with John Lou in our last episode it's just really hard to see how it'll happen given so many notions of how business happens today and so that's what Willem's trying to tackle and if he and everybody else involved in the project can start investing in doing real meaningful investments in projects that restore ecosystems and can demonstrate how it works without a lot of the negative consequences that we spoke with uh, on land grabs with Fred Pierce, then that's really exciting. Much in the same way that we, we saw with talking to Ian and Michael, you have to be prepared. You have to start preparing for these large scale changes before the actual disaster hits or else you're kind of up a creek. So the talk with Ian and Michael, you, you talked about the different ways that Japan was actually reacting to this large scale crisis. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about watching Ian and Michael's film is learning about what it was like from the experience of people in a place like Tokyo that was you know, relatively removed from Fukushima and 
still had to face fears of having their food contaminated with radiation and having to face up with that realization that, you know, death or permanent injury could be on the very immediate horizon, not just for them, but for everybody that they're surrounding. And when we talk about these large-scale trends of decline and collapse on our show, that's really the kind of situation that so many of us are in over the long term in the coming years and decades. And it's fascinating to see how it plays out in that single location in Japan and to hear how people are trying to adapt to it. But like Michael Stone was saying, he set out on the trip because he felt like in many ways our collective imagination is at the end of history and that there are no new ideas. And I hope that what we're able to do with the show is talk with people and put conversations out into the world that show that there are new ideas. There are really exciting ideas, like the idea of ecosystem restoration on a large scale. You know, that's really exciting to me. And it's also really interesting to talk about these new ways of telling that story of humanity in a way that embraces this new understanding that we've had with science and of the sustainability challenges of the day. But it's so easy to get caught up in that whole paradigm shift idea where just suddenly it's like there's a snap and everyone gets it suddenly and we all just wake up collectively and I think that what's interesting to hear from Michael and Ian is that they're letting go of that idea and they're realizing that it takes all of these very small actions to build up into these larger things that you can't just put these big ideas out into the world and suddenly everyone gets it and wakes up. I just wanted to hit on one last point from that conversation. I thought it was really interesting that Michael Stone said that the first responders to the disaster were the mob. And that's totally what we've been discussing with Dmitry Orlov in the multiple times he's been on our show in saying that when there are large systemic breakdowns and disasters, the people that tend to have the most organization to deal with it is not the federal emergency agency, it's organized crime because they have distribution networks put together. That's not to idealize it in any means, it's just that's the reality of the situation. You can't attach any emotion to that, you just have to realize they're organized and that's what they do. And speaking of organization, some of the people who have been keeping our limited organization going have been our fantastic listeners who have donated recently since the last episode. I want to point out before we start thanking listeners that for the first time in three years of doing this show, we had a whole schedule set out for the month of September for recording and we were ready to go and we were like, yeah, we're really organized and we're we're set on this. And then my laptop blew up, literally sparks <laughs> shot out of it at the beginning of this month and we had to rewrite our entire schedule. And so all the great content we had been putting together was horribly horribly delayed and I actually just got my laptop back yesterday and I have to take it back for more repairs later today so who knows when this final episode will get edited together but it just speaks to the numerous amazing complexities that we have to navigate on the back end that we never really talk about because frankly it's just boring but it gives you an idea of how tough it can be to produce things sometimes even when your best intentions are there with scheduling he is the only guy I know who can make a Mac laptop explode. Fortunately, it's a warranty repair, so it's no additional cost. It's just the time that it sets all of our video and audio editing back. But some of our fantastic listeners who have helped to fund equipment upgrades for better microphones were people like Erica in Oregon in the U.S. who donated to our show. So thank you, Erica. Thanks also to Peter from the Newosphere. Thank you so very much. Michael in Phoenix, who donated. So thank you, Michael. Thanks also to Gabby from the Newsphere for sending in a fantastic donation. So, so very, 
very thankful for all of our fantastic donators. Gabby was extremely generous in the donation and mentioned that the t-shirt should go to somebody locally as the donation was coming from overseas in Europe. And thanks to Soon in Denmark for sending in a donation and also for the incredible voicemail associated with this donation from Andreas, which I will play here. Dear Seth and Justin, this is Andreas calling in from Roskilde in Denmark. Thanks for your great podcast. I'm leaving this message on behalf of myself and my colleagues because we often discuss the topics you address and your viewpoints are very inspiring. We appreciate the debate you have because we don't have anything like it in Denmark. Almost everyone here talks of green growth, but no one talks about transition like you do. The main reason for me to leave this voicemail is to celebrate a dear friend and colleague, Mass Bielemarkesen, who just completed his PhD here at the Technical University of Denmark. I know that your podcasts have been a source of inspiration for him in choosing the lifestyle he now leads, but they've also influenced his academic work on energy self-sufficiency in farming, on food eroy and on sustainability of small-scale, low-input, organic vegetable production. The title of Mass's PhD dissertation is Sustainability Assessment of Food and Bioenergy Systems in a Societal Context, with the subtitle In a Time of Crisis. You'll be interested to hear that Mass's key conclusions are that One, it's unlikely that farms will be able to produce more energy than the energy they need themselves to produce food. Two, in Denmark, a joule of food requires around four joules of fossil energy for farming, processing, and transportation. That is, excluding the cooking. And three, at this time, eco-efficiency in food production may not mean much if it isn't paired with resilience, which is characteristic of more autonomous and low-input food supply systems. Now, the money we collected among colleagues for Mass's graduation gifts are all going your way because we know that they'll be used well and because we hope to see Mass wearing one of your cool garments when he's tending to his chickens and planting his beans. Thanks a lot and congratulations to Mass. It's voicemails like this that really inspire Justin and I and really keep us going. And it's, it's fantastic to hear that a whole group of students in another country that's not even close to where we live were able to get so much meaning and value out of the work that we do and to actively collect some money and send it our way for one of their colleagues so they can he, so he can have a t-shirt on upon his graduation that's really really fantastic yeah and so thanks to all the, all of Matt's colleagues who left that voicemail for us because it's really incredible and as Seth was just saying it's those kind of voicemails that give us that motivation to just keep going and keep putting out the kind of vision and discussion that we think is so absent from discussions uh, around the world about our ecological challenges. And so congrats on on the graduation, uh, Matt, and congrats on your dissertation on sustainable bioenergy. And for anybody else who has a graduate uh, thesis or dissertation influenced by the extra environmentalist, just let us know. We'd love to keep track of this. You know, I know that my graduate dissertation is absolutely influenced by the extra environmentalists. So, you know, I've got that one. And we know that Matt's is too. So we'll we'll mark that one down. That's two. And that's really two <laughs> more than two. we'd ever expected to have <laughs> with the extra environmentalist show. So that's that's two points for us. And, uh, you know, that, what, what more can you want out of life? Yeah, that's two, that's two solid citations. I mean, some academics get really excited whenever they get one citation. So we basically have two. <laughs> So if you, too, want to join the Extra Environmentalist ranks of uh, donators, you can 
you can do so by heading over to our website, extraenvironmentalist.com, and clicking on the donate button, which is located squarely on the website page off to the right-hand side. You can also contact the show via the link there on the email address, podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. You can find a whole backlog of episodes freely available to download to your device of choice. Uh, to your mobile device and take on the road with you to burn to CDs to give to your grandmother and to play on your stereo system at full blast in uh, your PhD lecture hall. Also, you can check us out on Twitter. X Environmental is our handle. And leave us a voicemail on our online audio voice mailbox. By going to Skype at The Extra Environmentalist, as Andreas did. However, if you are calling in from the United States or Canada, be sure to dial plus one nine one nine seven zero one nine eight seven two to leave a voicemail, as Quasi Periodic did recently regarding his reaction to our interview with Morris Berman. Hey guys, uh, just listening to Morris Berman. Got to say, as a post-nationalist, but technically still American, uh, a lot of what he said was rubbing me pretty wrong. To be just generalized in such a fashion, condescended towards and with such anger that he displayed, especially after in the uh, Kim Kardashian's rump thing. It was like, uh, I, I didn't feel like I would be able to personally have a useful conversation with him with the attitude he had towards all Americans uh, or anyone who lives in the country. And also, again, to criticize the concept of, zero, of you know being post-growth, being, being zero growth, being on a finite planet. I mean, even technically speaking, literally, the, the amount of anything on this planet is not strictly finite. We're being rained on by cosmic dust. Sure, that's minuscule, but in our real situation, it's not a finite situation. We're being doused with electricity or energy, more than just electricity, 24 hours a day. It's, it's really obvious. There's an infinite amount of electricity right there all the time. And from what I've read, it's easily transmissible by microwaves to planetary stations. And then there's Lots of cometary ice and water, transporting water into the into orbit. I think I read twenty thousand dollars per liter, something like that. So that generates and potentiates economies of scale to where you can actually build up a scale to start harvesting. It just really frustrates me. This this finite planet shit is it's just not even doesn't make sense. I mean, it makes sense you were coming from this post peak, you know, running out of oil sort of mindset, but it's not the real situation of the planet, and it's not really the real situation of us as humans. Psychedelically, I mean, our experience isn't finite. Sure, we're all going to die, but humanity, by our faculties, has aspects of the infinite. And to dismiss that and discard it, it's it's a tragedy, and I don't think it's going to lead anyone in the right direction. We need to harvest the infinity we do have. And another person who wrote in to uh, express their displeasure with Morris Berman's view of Americans is uh, James in Pennsylvania, who wrote in to say that it frustrates him to hear people like Morris Berman, who are able to live without a wage job, talk shit about Americans. And even though he agrees with a lot of what Berman had to say, it doesn't seem like he's had to work a low-paying wage job or spent much time in a working-class neighborhood. And because he was lucky to be born into a good family, and it's not really helpful to James to hear people like him talk so much shit. So yeah, I understand Quasi-Periodic's point. I understand James's point. But there's also a side, going back to what Quasi-Periodic was saying, where you have to not take it 
personally and realize that Morris Berman is talking literally about the homogeneous culture that has pervaded the American way. And so like quasi-periodic is working actively to not be part of that culture, make a different culture, and other people are doing that too, and, and our show is a part of that as well. And the, even though there are plenty of Americans listening to it, that doesn't mean that every American listening to our show is part of that uh, homogenous American culture that Morris Berman is critiquing. I don't know. What do you think, Seth? Well, I think that being aware of what's happening right now is the first step and understanding that the writing on the wall of inevitable change is happening and both James and Quasi are hitting on some really important parts that they they realize that they're a part of this big change and I think that they see it and they want they want to be a part of it and they they don't always it's, it's I mean, I know I sometimes are frustrated about how to be a part of it. And I think it's just being being aware and being being present is is really being a part of that change. And that and that is a big piece of it. And also going back to quasi periodics cr- critique on degrowth and zero growth. You know, the the issue is not that there's not enough energy in the world, as we've gotten to with many of our interviews and with our discussions. It's just that there's not enough energy metabolism in the world to run the society that we've constructed with our material comforts, expectations, and technologies. And so, while certainly you know solar energy is how humans have. Existed existed for so many years, that's not the kind of solar energy that we use to, say, power a, a manufacturing plant that manufactures iPhones. It's the kind that's captured in photosynthesis for agriculture. And so it's really hard to imagine how uh, we're going to continue growing on a material level. And so we could harvest resources from space, but a lot of it's built on unsustainable business models. And so it doesn't matter how much we bring in from space. We've got a lot of other issues to deal with. And the argument that human imagination will supply everything we need, we're going to get into that in one of our future interviews with Brian Check from the Center for the Steady State Economy and how that whole idea of infinite ingenuity and innovation driving the economy was created by a guy named Paul Romer and with the ideas of endogenous and exogenous growth theory. And innovation is not a free lunch. It has to come from somewhere else. And that's what we're going to hear from Brian Check. But if you want to hear more about those arguments now, be sure to check out his book, Supply Shock, which we'll be covering on that episode. But thank you so much for that, Quasi-Periodic. It's, it's great to hear that perspective. And it's one that we certainly can't discount human ingenuity entirely. But it's also not something that we can rely on to, say, put gasoline in the engine of a society that requires 80 plus million barrels a day of oil equivalent to run on. And that energy isn't going to go away overnight, but it also isn't going to be able to expand dramatically past the projections that many people are expecting. So until human ingenuity can fill my gas tank directly, we may have some issues. I'm waiting for that day. (laughs) Definitely. Uh, One other comment that we wanted to get into was from our longtime listener and friend of the show, Kevin, in Los Angeles. Hey there, Seth and Justin. This is Kevin once again with a comment about episode number 64. I really like the episode. I mean, who couldn't like that whole Kim Kardashian thing? And besides which, I really enjoyed the in-depth conversation you had with Morris Berman. Uh, In fact, I have yet another example of that individualistic American dream attitude which you were discussing with uh, Morris Berman. Health, you see, is a great example of the scientific deterministic viewpoint you guys were discussing. Just like wealth, health is also something that Americans tend to reduce down to a handful of numbers. Achieving the right BMI, blood pressure, and cholesterol, and that and only that is defined as success. Specifically, I want to bring up obesity. Like Berman says, 
medical science tells us that our own bodies are basically machines. That's what your doctor or your friends are essentially saying when they advise you that weight control is merely a matter of calories in versus calories out. If you would only take the trouble to put in a precisely measured quantity of wheat and vitamins down one end of your machine, they're telling you, you would get exactly one racquetball game and a little bit of waste product out your other end. Period. End of story. This is strange to me because, after all, we all own one, so we all should know at some level that our bodies are not simple machines like that. Americans tend to have a blame the losers mentality about obesity because, supposedly, science has already solved the problem of exactly how obesity works. So the fact that Americans keep getting more and more obese year after year can only mean that people are lazy and have made a conscious decision not to work for themselves. Just like Americans tend to say about poor people. Trust me, read the comment section of any news article about obesity, or if you mention the subject to more than half a dozen friends, you will see that this is a national neurosis. The only real man is a self-made man, uh, Morris Berman said, and this is true in terms of physique. We don't dare mollycoddle the lazy fat people by admitting that the country is awash with extremely unhealthy, cheap, processed, sugary food. And because Americans don't think in terms of socialism, as Berman said, we're not going to have a conversation anytime soon about how most of the jobs left in this country are totally sedentary, but nevertheless so demanding that they simply don't leave you enough hours in the day for a healthy amount of sleep between working overtime, commuting, raising your kids, let alone enough time to take exercise seriously. Like Morris Berman says about the American dream, we are overdue for a re-enlightenment and we need to reinvent our national character on this issue too. I think that reinvention is already underway, and it's one of the factors behind the recent surge in urban homesteading, growing your own food, and avoiding GMOs and pesticides. We know darn well that the processed food we all eat every day is unhealthy. We literally feel it in our guts. But we're flooded with the corporate hype that our system, the American food system, just like the economic system, it's the pinnacle of human history, and America dines on all the best food imported from everywhere in the world. This creates a cognitive dissonance which many of us try to resolve by blaming fat people for spoiling the utopian image. As part of that same re-enlightenment with regards to health, Americans need to redefine success too. Again, like Berman was saying, we need to admit that there are a lot of different body types out there, and most of them don't look like underwear models. But just suggest in public or on the internet that different body types exist or that people have different types of metabolisms from each other, and you will get a firestorm of protest about how none of that matters compared to the existential threat that the fat people pose because they cannot be persuaded to put padlocks onto their refrigerators. Welcome to America in the 21st century. Thanks to Kevin for, for pointing that out and pointing out that the whole idea of reimagining uh, society also has to be applied to body types and health. And speaking of body types, our t-shirts are also <laughs> something that we're, we are reimagining. And so we've been using our Zazzle store for a while to do t-shirts, but we wanted to do something that was a little bit more handcrafted in the, the approach. And so we wanted to put out a call to anybody who is still listening at this point in the episode, because I know we've been going on for a while, to offer their t-shirt design skills to us. We'd love to have anybody who is skilled with with the graphic arts to send us in designs and their reimagining of the extra environmentalist t-shirt design, because we'd like to put in a big order for a lot of shirts that we buy all at once that we can then use to offer a much higher quality shirt, because we want to make sure that the shirts that we do have are reflective of the values of our show, even though it is kind of weird that we're like, hey, don't consume, but buy our t-shirt. That's right. So if you have a spouse or a cousin 
or a boss or somebody in your life who is fantastic at drawing or using a computer to make images. Or is graduating from their thesis and dissertation. Let us know and send us your fantastic entry. And we will be happy to add you onto the list of people who will get a t-shirt. And we might even send you some stickers. Yeah. And we don't have a particular prize to offer for the design, but we'd be willing to work something out and we can, you know, figure out a way to say thanks to anybody who submits a design that we use. We've received a lot of other emails and news items that we want to cover, but we'll just leave it here for today and say thanks to everybody who is listening to episode number 66 of The Extra Environmentalist. Hopefully my laptop will start working soon and we can put out episodes a little bit faster. We'll certainly have a few episodes coming up in the month of October and along with a Halloween special as well. It's a very, very scary and exciting Halloween special, so keep your ears peeled for that. Hope that Justin does not destroy his computer. I want to say thanks to Simon and Andy for sending in their amazing sticker photos, and don't forget if you have an extra environmentalist sticker, put it on something, take a photo, and send it our way, because we really do love it. We're going to work on making a gallery for the website of them. Or just tattoo it onto Justin's back. Yes. Enjoy the cooler weather as it moves into a fall-like time. Camping is in the premium. Enjoy the squash and light a fruity candle. is I you need to build an ability to just be yourself and not be doing something that's what the phones yes. are taking away yes is the ability to just sit there like this that's being a person right yes no one can they gotta uh, you gotta check because there, you know underneath everything in your life there's that thing that empty forever empty you know what I'm talking about <laughs> that yes 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 I yes Yes, Just I know that, what you're that talking knowledge about. that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know, it's down there. And sometimes when things clear away, you're not watching it, you're in your car and you start going, oh, no, here it comes <laughs> that I'm alone. Like it starts to visit on you. You know, just the sadness. Yes. Life is tremendously sad just by, you know, being in it. And so you're driving, and then you go, uh, that's why we text and drive. I look around, pretty much 100% of people driving are texting. Yes. And they're killing, everybody's murdering each other with their cars. Yes. But people are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's so hard. I was in my car one time, and a Bruce Springsteen song comes on, and it made me really sad. It's like Jungle, what was the one? Jungle song? Jungle Land. And I heard it, and it gave me kind of like a fall back to school depression feeling. It made me really sad. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm getting sad. I've got to get the phone and write hi to like 50 people. <laughs> and then, you know, somebody cool writes back, and then somebody not as cool writes after, and I'm like, oh, f*** you, I'm not going <laughs> to... I got somebody better. <laughs> but... Uh, I started to get that sad feeling, and I was reaching for the phone, and I said, you know what, don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness just stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. <laughs> and I let it come, and Bruce, 
and I just started to feel, oh my God. And I pulled over and I just cried like a bitch. I cried so much. And, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it's just this, sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings, because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes. Rushing in. Rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad, and then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know, and the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, yeah. we push it away with like a little phone third for the food, <laughs> and you get, you get a little kind of, you never feel completely sad or completely happy. Right. You just feel kind of satisfied with your product. Yes. And then you die. <laughs> so that's why I don't want to get a phone for my kids. That's what I'm <laughs> episode of the extra environmentalist we speak with economist michael hudson about the dynamics of debt deflation the history of debt modern neo-feudalism and what really happens when the federal reserve undertakes quantitative easing people are saying wait a minute why is the fed making the one percent even richer when it's not doing a single thing for the economy when they're cutting taxes they're pushing deflation here they're pushing austerity why should the fed continue to give free profits and a guarantee free ride to Wall Street and the 1% while it's smacking the 99% right in the face. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Americans Idol, where Americans compete against one another for the last few remaining jobs in this entire country, and their shot at the American dream. We're joined by our fantastic panel of celebrity judges. From the InfoWars newsroom, Alex Jones. It's great to see you, Alex Trebekistan. It's been a while since... You know, I've been out here and I just absolutely think that if we get the Illuminati out of power, we're going to really have a shot at the American dream. From the Facebook offices in, in Silicon Valley, we have Mark Zuckerberg, who had a terrible accident with his Halloween costume, is now trapped permanently in the costume of Darth Vader. It's great to be here in this devastated industrial city. Uh, to really talk about how we can replace everything with just coding and apps. And from the Federal Reserve Bank in Washington, D.C., the illustrious Ben Bernanke. Well, I don't recall stating that we would do any particular thing in this meeting. What we are going to do is the right thing for the economy. We go live outside the studios where thousands and thousands of Americans are lined up to be the next American Idols. I think 
think I can become the next American's Idol because my job skills are so, so good. I've been practicing for weeks flipping burgers in the mirror. My spatula skills are fantastic. I know that I have what it takes to achieve the American dream. We cut live to Bill Bishop, who's traveled over 600 miles to be with us here from Kansas City, Missouri, to show us his skills. All right, well, get on with it, Bill. Let's see what you got. Uh, uh, well, you see, guys, uh, well, you see, uh, I'm I'm gonna do pull-ups on these bootstraps in order to to to, to demonstrate how um uh, uh, uh um I'd be really good at, at achieving the American dream in any job. I'll show you. Oh, great! Another bootstrap pull-up. One, two, three. Uh, I I I can do four. I I really can do four. Uh, uh. That's fantastic, folks. Four bootstrap pulls. Let's go live to our celebrity judges to see what they have to say. It didn't quite meet the standard of satisfying our basic um, outlook for, again, increasing growth, uh, uh, improving labor markets and inflation moving back uh, towards target. Are, are you calling that a bootstrap pull? Because in my day, if we wanted to achieve the American dream, we got out there and we had a revolution like it was 1776 again. And I don't understand why that was pulling bootstrap. You know, one of our reasons for acquiring Instagram was so that people could post photos of themselves pulling themselves up on bootstraps all over Facebook and use their camera phones to do it in a really easy way. And I hope that with our recent interface upgrades, we've been able to capture that. And so while you were doing that, I went on to the Pull Yourself Up By Your Bootstraps Facebook page and there were many better examples than what you were doing, and so I'm afraid I cannot offer you a position at our Silicon Valley offices. So now, Americans, it's your opportunity to go to your touchtone telephones and vote whether or not Bill gets the job. If you like what Bill had to offer, touch 612 on your touchtone phone when you call in this number. It is a 1-900 number, so you will be charged $300 per vote. Every vote donates $255 to the Golden Parachute Fund of Goldman Sachs. While we're tallying those votes, let's head back out to the line. This old man looks green because he's so sick for an employment opportunity. Hey, old-timer, what do you have to say? Unemployed I've been for many years, hmm? Apparently, senior citizens have difficulty transitioning to new jobs, hmm? Official unemployment statistics capture not, hmm? Hernia blame assigned to Obamacare, hmm? Quantitative easing pain provides strong force for continued unemployment, hmm? Next up, we have this old Detroit metalworking factory that is additioning to be reconditioned by Chinese investors. We have a whole contingent of Chinese investors in the audience who are ready and willing to manufacture shake weights, America's favorite workout utility. All right, let's see what you got, factory. Weights isolate one muscle in one direction, but shake weight harnesses the power of dynamic inertia to totally redefine strength training as you should. All right, folks, we're heading to commercial break, but when we get back, one of our contestants is going to do a rousing number of Dolly Parton's 9 to 5. But instead of 9 to 5, it's 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. on weekdays. Stay with us. First National Bank of Mattress is sponsoring this year's first annual Mattress Bank Run, a marathon to get people running through the streets centered around the idea of banking. That's how much we care about your community. If you're worried...